I mean, I think that Hawthorne is showing us sort of all of the angles. He's clearly showing us the excesses of the punishment. That's clear. He's not endorsing the kind of punishment that this community puts Hester through. But he's also not denying the reality of sin and guilt and shame. To the contrary, he's showing how they work out. So while he's acknowledging and depicting their undeniable reality, he's also offering us a chance to kind of look at, so, so given that undeniable reality, what do we do about it? Hey everyone, you're listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss how literature can help us think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. As always, I'm your host, Jennifer Frey. I'm a philosopher at the University of South Carolina, and I'm also a faculty fellow at the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America. You can find me on Twitter at Jen Frey. I'm on Instagram at Professor S. Frey. And you can also find this podcast on Twitter. Our handle is at Pod. As always, I would like to thank my sponsors for their support of this podcast. First and foremost, the Institute for Human Ecology underwrites this podcast. If you don't know about them, the IHE is the nation's leading academic institute committed to research into the economic, cultural, and social conditions vital for human flourishing. To learn more about the IHE, you can go to their website, ihe.catholic.edu. And I'd also like to thank The Lamp Magazine and The Point Magazine for their support of the work we do here on Sacred and Profane Love. As a $10 patron of Sacred and Profane Love, for example, you can get a free digital subscription to either The Lamp or The Point magazines. I subscribe to both magazines. I think you should as well. But I'm also just very grateful to both of them for their sponsorship. And if you want to become a $10 patron, just go to patreon.com slash eudaimoniapod to sign up. All right, I am pleased to get to episode 54 of the podcast which is with Karen Swallow Pryor on Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter. As always, I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Sacred and Profane Love. I'm super excited this afternoon to be joined once again by Karen Swallow Pryor. Uh, Karen is a research professor of English and Christianity and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And she's the author of many books, but my favorite book of hers is on reading well, finding the good life through the great books. And this is her second time on the podcast. She was with me. When was that? I don't even remember. When when did we do this? Did we talk about Heart of Heart of Darkness? We did, but like then I think it it would have been three years ago. Oh my gosh, that's insane. Well, welcome (laughs) back to the podcast, Karen. Great to be with you again. Yeah, I'm I'm just <laughs> I'm so excited. I was just saying that um, I've been teaching Aquinas all morning and now it's just, you know, Puritan America. <laughs> and um, but it's interesting because I was talking about sin this morning. We were talking we're in that part of the Summa where we're talking about angels and the fall of the devil and how on earth could this happen? Um, and also creation and evil and what's the difference between the, the evil of guilt versus natural evil. And yeah, so I'm just very excited. I was telling my students, I'm like, I just finished the most incredible story about guilt. 
that I've ever read. I bet you've read it, The Scarlet Letter. Uh, so that's what we're going to be talking about. I have not read this since high school. I just reread it, and it's amazing. I'm very surprised by how much I love this novel. Wow. Yeah, I mean, are you you're not you're not an americanist. So this isn't like right, your specialty. Right. Like why did you? And I should say that we're doing the um let's see. You have this new edition of the Scarlet Letter, a guide to reading and reflecting. Um I'm just trying to see who published this. Who? B&H Publishers. B&H. Yeah, so it's part of a right. series, right? Right, right, right. And I, as you said, I'm, I'm not an Americanist. My specialty is, is British literature, 18th and 19th century, which is the, you know, the English novel, which is my specific specialty. And so all of five other books in this series that I edited are all British. They're ones I've known and loved and taught for years. And, you know, I picked the ones I love the most, but then I also wanted to pick ones that I, you know, that I thought readers would want an introduction to. Mm -hmm. And also that, that have, I mean, of course, this is true of all classics, but that say something very specific to us today in this time and place. And I think guilt and sexual sin and religion in general are, you know, we're all grappling with these yeah. things in one way or another in our culture. So, um, and, and I just thought, well, I'll throw in a token American novel. So, yeah. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> well, I think, I mean, I think you picked a good one. Like I said, I hadn't read it since high school. And I mean, I liked it in high school. I remember liking it. But I, it just lands very, very differently for me now. When I was in high school, I was an atheist. And I read this. And what I took away from it was sort of... I think I took the wrong thing away from it. Hmm. And I think what I took away from it in high school is what a lot of people take from this novel, which is that this whole concept of sin is incredibly oppressive. And uh, look at what happens when you operate under this incredibly oppressive <laughs> concept of sin. It's very bad. Um, don't we all feel so good about ourselves now that we don't have this? And I, I now think that was... A profound misreading of this novel. I don't. I don't think well, that's the it, takeaway. In fairness to you, and I don't mean to, you know, I don't mean to be overly critical of high school English teachers. I was one one year, um, <laughs> but I think this novel is taught that way a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, that's sort of. I mean, and, and it's and it's there. The criticism of religion, the criticism of our Puritan history specifically, is there. Mm -hmm. But it, there's more than that that's there. It's more complicated than that. Yeah, so, but it often gets reduced down to the anti-Puritanism. Right. I think it's way more complicated. Even if you take the religious angle out of it, I think there's something very complex and human going on in this novel that, you know, we're meant to pay attention to. But I also, I think that when I read this, you know, when I was 16, so that was, um, that was a good bit ago. Uh, but I think it was taught alongside The Crucible, you know, this mm. play by Arthur Miller. Um, right, right. And so I think there was also this element of kind of out of control shame, this, this kind of out of control or maybe what now we would call cancel culture. <laughs> Hmm. You know, we, we wouldn't have called it, it that then, but it's sort of the same thing. It's sort of this McCarthyism, right. like this need to, this sort of dark impulse to shame people 
in ways that are quite extreme and can take different forms, whether it's rooting out the communists or... <laughs> or the witches. Yeah, or the witches, right? And a, or, the adult, or the adulterers, right? Right, exactly. So maybe what I... There's so much that I want to talk about, but I think maybe one place to start is to talk about Hawthorne just a little bit. It's kind of... I mean, so he, he comes from a long line of Puritans mm-hmm. and... And and didn't he live in Salem, Massachusetts, or around there? Or I mean, right. he's, yes, he's yes, he's like connected he lived, to this, right? Right, right. I mean, his his ancestors came over on the boat, and and he lived in the same region of the country where they had lived, in, in you know, in New England. Which is funny because I grew up in New England, and it really wasn't. It's not until much later in life that you think, oh, New England is was named after the old, you know, it's the new one, not the old one. Right. And the, you know, so those, right. those connections, that's what he's, gra- I mean, New England considered itself part of England when it was first settled and, and, the, and that Puritanism continued. But what I see in Hawthorne, you know, because he, he traces his ancestry, his Puritan ancestry back to a great, great, great grandfather um, and his great, great grandfather participated in the Salem witch trials as a judge. And I, this is one of the, the the really relevant themes for today is, you know, I think he's like ashamed of his family, mm-hmm. right? He's ashamed of his heritage, his mm-hmm. roots, his religious background, and he's working that out. And you don't have to spend five minutes on Twitter today before you see people who are doing the same, like working out their own shame of their, their roots, their origins, their previous, you know, their, their family traditions and religion. I mean, this is something many people go through. I mean, is he kind of, yeah. So why, I mean, why do you think he writes this novel? I mean, beyond just sort of working through some kind of inherited guilt. Well, I think, I mean, this, and not to overly psychoanalyze, you know, Hawthorne as as a writer, but this, the themes and the story itself, I mean, they're just they're ripe for being told in America at this time, right? Because because he's writing a story that's about early America before it even became a country, but he's writing it in a moment when America was still a new country and it was, you know, sort of striving for its own identity. I mean, again, if, if America was a child or a teenager, um, it too was kind of struggling against its past and trying to forge a new future that is, that, um, you know, throws away some of the what it of the old traditions, and so writing in this, living in in New England, having this Puritan past, being born. I mean, it's so funny that Hawthorne was born on the Fourth of July, right? Oh, so was he much, really? <laughs> yeah, he was. He was born on the Fourth of July, eighteen oh four or five. I think I can't. I'm not good with the years, but in you know, in the early nineteenth century. Um, so America's you know not even fifty years old. And he's there in sort of the heart of America, where it began. And everyone's kind of wrestling with what is America? What is the, you know, the American dream is sort of emerging versus gestating. Um, And so this is a perfect story to explore the past, America's past, a family's past, um, and its future. And it's, you know, it's also the kind of story that, that, Hawthorne and other 
writers in the American Renaissance who are who are transcendentalists and interested in the spiritual themes and in symbols and all of them were. And so he was part of that that group of writers. So it was just a it's so reflective of this moment in American history, which is why, you know, some would say it is one of the one of, if not the great American novel. Right. Yeah. It's really good. But I let's talk about transcendentalism and sort of the intellectual circles that he is running around in in Massachusetts. Like what I mean, if you could just distill that down. Yeah. Yeah. So, again, my specialty is British literature. So it helped me to think about transcendentalism as kind of the American version of romanticism. And so there's in both romanticism and transcendentalism, there's, you know, kind of a, a rejection of or reaction against the overemphasis on rationalism that sort of defined the enlightenment of the, the previous centuries. But in the American context that Hawthorne was in, again, it's also tied into sort of this future of America. I mean, so many of the transcendentalists were right there in, in Salem, in Boston. They were all living and, and writing there. Uh, you know, we think of Thoreau and Emerson, but also Louisa May Alcott, Emily Dickinson. I mean, that place yielded all of the 19th, well, not ones that I know anyway, the 19th century uh, writers. and. Yet, what's interesting about Hawthorne is he really didn't adopt transcendentalism. He married a transcendentalist, his friends were transcendentalists, but he was kind of an outsider. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't a Puritan. He didn't really seem to profess any kind of faith or religion, but he kind of, you know, drank from all of the different wells and absorbed them. And that's, you know, that's maybe a weakness, we might think. We who are, you know, have strong commitments. But that also, I think, is part of the gift of this book, because he doesn't have like this personal commitment to any of these ideas. So he explores, I mean, he's brilliant enough to explore them and to look at the tensions and the ambiguities, um, because he doesn't really have a personal commitment to them. And so that gives us the chance to look at some of those ambiguities and tensions that we might not as readily recognize. Right. So it's not, so he's not, he's not going for a kind of realism or right. a kind of rationalism. What I mean, I think in your I think in your introduction you you say it's in the genre of romanticism. But I just wonder if you could say more about what that means in terms of writing a novel. Because another thing that's interesting about this novel, and also a little bit weird, is the first chapter. It, it's like a frame narrative. It's funny that the last episode I did with you was also a frame narrative. <laughs> um, uh, that was completely by That's accident, right. I That's think. Right. <laughs> but, um, you know, why, why does he set it up that way? And, you know, how does that kind of color how, how we read the text? Yeah, so we'll start first with the idea of it being a romance. Um, and actually that his original title was like the Scarlet Letter, a romance. And romances are, you know, very closely linked to novels, but they're actually older than novels. They're one of the streams from which novels come. So if you think of the Arthurian legends, those are romances. Yep. They're adventures. And they deal with a lot of um, sort of sweeping and tight, sweeping 
situations and characters as types. So black and white idealist idealism, you know, dragons, witches, um, good guys, bad guys, white hats, black hats. Mm -hmm. I don't know the Star Wars reference, but you know, like, (laughs) yeah, well, (laughs) some of them are good and some are bad. Yeah, it's kind of more like legend. I mean, would you say that? Yeah, legend, but also that idealism that that. Now, Hawthorne, he transcends that, no pun intended. But, you know, it, it's it, like the the characters in romances tend to be black and white. You know, they're, they're good or they're bad. They're not what the, the novel does is comes along and in a realistic way complicates things and presents what Samuel Johnson famously fretted about, like mixed characters <laughs> like that. That was those were risky because they were that, that's what we we're like. And so Hawthorne called this a romance and he's so he's not trying he's not striving for the kind of realism that the novel say over in England or in France uh, was was developing and turning into yet I think you know this is a novel even if he was writing a romance it he there's the ambig there is enough ambiguity and complication I think to to lend it a kind of realism but he is his, he, he it, and in some ways, it really is, and this is why it gets taught a lot, I think, in high school, not only because of its place in American literature, but it's not that long, right? It's it's a longish tale, mm-hmm. um, a shortish novel, mm-hmm. and tales were his, what he'd already written. And so in some sense, we could say it's a long tale and it's it's unified in that way, except for this, you know, for the custom house part, <laughs> which is so vexing. And... Yeah, I tried to parse that out in the introduction and talk about it and and connect it together. And and basically, Hawthorne is, you know, he's setting up the story by creating a narrator. He's, as you said, this is a frame narrative. He he gives us a narrator who tells us that he stumbled across the papers that tell this story, right? Which actually also lends it some realism because it's like, well, I didn't, you know, I'm not... I'm not, I didn't make this up. This was just what I found in this trunk somewhere. So, you know, in the 1600s, this, these events happen. And then a hundred years later, somebody writes them down. And then a hundred years or something after that, our narrator finds them and, and tells the story. But the narrator is actually of the custom house is actually a lot like Hawthorne biographically and, you know, rhetorically and so forth. Mm -hmm. So there's, you know, He's drawing on his own experience working in a custom house. Yeah, I mean, chapter one is very long. Like I was, like 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 Conrad's frame narrative, like it's short. You know, yeah. Sort of like just sets it up and then <laughs> yeah, a this couple is, paragraphs. This right. is like yeah. this yeah. is like ninety pages. Like I mean, so and and I and I have to be honest, I found it a bit of a slog. I I don't mm-hmm. love chapter one. Um, I mean, why does he spend so much time going over the custom house mm-hmm. and it's so dreary and you know, like, no, I I I don't love it either. I mean, I don't. You know, there are a number of works that led me to British literature, and this might be Moby Dick, and this one uh-huh. maybe. But yeah, <laughs> you know, I I think again, this is the part, and I'm not big into biographical criticism, but this is kind of the poli- where Hawthorne's being political. I mean, he had lost his job. The co- you know, being in the custom house was a political appointment. And so a lot of uh, his life was 
very connected to the politics of the day. Later on, he becomes an appointee of President Franklin Pierce, whom he went to school with or went to college with. And so he's actually in in this introduction, he's taking a lot of stabs at the politicians and, and the political situation of the day. I mean, I guess in some ways, you know, he's being a little Dante-esque here. Like, mm. there are so many, he's, he's reflecting the actual, some very particular historical facts, but in, the, in this, the guise of this sort of satirical story. So it's, it's really, it's not the best, but it's, mm-hmm. you know, he's, he, it's part of the work. And that's the question to ask is what, uh, to me, the strength that it adds to the work is that it gives us, there's a link between the narrator of this story and the story that follows. And I think I ask in the, in the questions, this is, this is the part that sort of shed the light for me from the introduction, just for anyone who's going to slog through it, mm-hmm. is when the narrator says and that moonlight in a familiar room is a medium the most suitable for a romance writer. Now that's you know, that he's describing a setting um, in the custom house, and he's again. This is I mean he's the, this is Percy Bysshe Shelley who talks about um, lift, you know that poetry lifts the veil of of familiarity so we can see things anew, and so this is in some ways Hawthorne's version of it. So he's he's very much rooted in the politics and the particularities of his time, but he's trying to sort of shed. A different, see it through a different light by writing a romance mm-hmm. about these very historical, real things that, that happened. Does he have, I mean, in doing this, I'm just wondering, does he have any ambition of giving something to American letters that in Europe they can take for granted? Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, the novel in Europe grows out of this stock of whatever, sagas and mm-hmm, legends mm-hmm. and romances and epic poems. I mean, is he trying to give us something similar to connect us to our past? Or, you know, I don't know. Or is that a stretch? I, no, I, I think I think he is. I mean, he he lived amid all of these great writers. He was one of, you know, he was one of the, the first. But he even expressed in his journal, I don't remember if it was a journal or a letter, but he he wrote down when he went off to college that maybe he'd write the great American novel. So he really was consciously trying to write something that would be great, obviously, and also, you know, kind of offer a voice of this for this new, newly emerging and developing country. Mm-hmm. So I think he was trying to do that. Yeah. So, okay. So let's get to the actual story. Um, which, as you mentioned, is 200 years in the past from the time that Hawthorne is alive. So in a, in a sense, it's like a historical novel, but in a sense, it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's like a little bit tricky genre wise, but it, it opens up with this very dramatic spectacle, right? That we're all more or less familiar with. And that that is the spectacle of Hester Prynne, you know, our, our main character, one of the main characters, going through this spectacle of, of guilt and shame on the scaffold. Why? I mean, and, it, and it's such a striking. Yeah, it's, it's very powerfully written and, and very mm-hmm. wonderfully done. Yeah, I just 
I wonder if we could talk about kind of how the story opens up. Yeah, I mean, I, I love what you said um, earlier in, in drawing the connection to cancel culture and just, you know, the public shaming that still goes on today. Because so I think that's part of the reason why this resonates so much. I mean, we still want to shame one another. And, and so when we study American history and we read about, you know, the scaffolds and, you know, it it's not just ancient history. You know, it's not just... It, I mean, we may not use that anymore, but it's still it's still something that we do. We still publicly shame people, and we still bury you know. I mean that that bear burdens of guilt and shame. No, that, we that's, we we'll attack get, them we, online now, right? We have, yeah, we have, exactly. We have and Twitter. how much more public can you get than that? That's right. right? Yeah, we have Twitter right, campaigns, right. and yeah, yeah, we definitely still do it. And and so here Hawthorne writes about this in a different time and place in such a poetic and powerful way, as you said. It's so memorable, but and it, it se- that makes it seem foreign and in the past. But it's but it's really not. It's because this is about the human condition. We you know this, this scaffold might be digital now, but it's still a scaffold. And I you know he 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 right away it's a lot of the conversation is happening among the townspeople, right? It's not like just this woman on the scaffold. It's all of the people talking around her. And, and one of the things, you know, when I, when I was doing this volume, I hadn't read this novel for like 20 years. So, you know, so I was coming back and reading it with pretty, pretty fresh eyes as well. And I mean, it just struck me how, you know, the women are so hard on this woman and they would have punished her even more. They're all talking about what they would have done or how. how oh, much because more that's what women are gotten, like. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's true. Uh, the, yeah, the We're so mean the to each other, right? Yeah, right. And and this and and so I think you know that kind of behavior comes when you're sort of when when you are the the people who are least in power, right? Like you, like that, that's how we take it out. And so this hasn't. We're still that way. <laughs> Because in many ways, some of the, dynamic, the the dynamics of our culture are the same as the one that Hawthorne is describing. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think um, there there's some things that are really interesting to me about how he sets this up. One is that we don't really know what's going on in the beginning. I mean, we know that this woman has committed adultery. She's got the scarlet letter A that she has to wear. She's being put on the scaffold so that everybody can heckle her uh, and shame her. And, of course, she also has this babe in arms. So mm, she right. has she has not just the scarlet A that she herself has embroidered, right, on, on her chest. Right. Uh, it's actually, right. uh, you know, but that she has this living embodiment of person. And that is, in fact, at one point, Hawthorne says of, of her daughter, Pearl, that she is the scarlet letter endowed with life, right? She, you know, so it's not just that she has like this thing on her chest, but she has this other human being that embodies her sin and her sense of shame. And she's and she's holding the baby while she's on the scaffold. But we don't really know anything about the adultery. Like, we don't know the context. 
We don't know. I mean, we know she had sex. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And we know that it was, you know, outside the bounds of marriage. But we don't know anything more than that. And and we don't know who the father is. And, of course, she... People want to know. I find that interesting. Mm-hmm. They, they really want him to be shamed as well. And they're, they seem very upset that she's on the scaffold by herself. Why won't she name him? And she refuses to name him. She says, would that I might endure his agony as well as mine. You know, she's mm-hmm. sort of like... Um, She's not going. Yeah, I mean, she's going she, to carry. She's going to carry both of the weight for both of them. She right. refuses, and so initially, you sort of think, "Wow, she must have really loved him. Like maybe this was a, a torrid love affair, and she wants to protect her beloved, and you know, she's willing to suffer for both of them." But you know, it's it's also interesting because there's all of this dramatic irony because once you know. I mean, it's interesting to go back and and think about these opening scenes, well, actually a bunch of scenes in light of who we know is the father eventually, right? right. Um, which is what? How did you say his name? Is it Dimsdale? Yes, yes. It's it's one of the what would we call him? A pastor? Yeah, a clergyman, yeah. A minister. He's called a minister in the in the novel. Yeah. yeah. So you know he's one of one of the religious authorities in the town. Right. Uh, in fact, he seems right. to be the most beloved religious authority in the town. And you know it's so interesting because all these other people are so mad that she won't name him, mm-hmm. and he's like, "Oh, her generosity of spirit. <laughs> she won't name him." <laughs> right? Well, this this is one of the points that I think that never really, in my experience, gets talked about. And that is how, in some ways, that is a more, that is a more just approach than we often see today. At least, you know, in, in my evangelical context, you know, what, what you hear about a lot is how the fallen woman bears all of the guilt and shame. And, if, and especially if it involves someone who's a religious leader like that is kept hush hush and it's the opposite situation. So in some ways I, I think what Hawthorne is revealing, whether even if their motives are wrong is that they actually do want equality, you know, equal punishment for the man and the woman. And I think in today's culture, we actually don't have that as much, at least in, in, in my context, it's like the woman is supposed to, carry even if it's not you know that's what ends up happening is she carries most or all of the burden and shame and and so that strikes me because this is actually a positive part of puritan culture that hawthorne reveals like Mm -hmm. they aren't just blaming her Mm -hmm. they're like no no you had a partner in this and who is like they want them both to carry yeah it was really interesting i mean i was actually surprised because, yeah, it'd been a, a very long time for me in reading this, and I didn't remember hardly any of the details. And I was like, oh, no, they're really after him, too. And mm-hmm. they get, they actually seem willing to show her a modicum of mercy up to the point where she refuses to name him. Mm-hmm. And then they just get right. so mad right. that she won't do it. And I thought that was really interesting because it does complicate 
one mm-hmm. reading of this according to which, oh, you know, it's just a morality play about misogyny and, and how, right. Mm-hmm. I think it's so far as that's true, it's, it's certainly complicated. I mean, they really, the, the Puritans are portrayed on their own terms, I think. And as people who are taking this very serious, but that somehow gets kind of darker motives start to take over for Mm -hmm. them. And so, I mean, for example, I don't think, although I'm super interested in, in what you think, but I don't think that Hawthorne is against shame. Right. Or, or thinks that notions of guilt are just like dumb and old fashioned. And I don't even necessarily think he rejects the concept of sin. So it's not like, oh, she didn't, she didn't do anything Mm -hmm. wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, why are we being so fuddy duddy? I think he takes seriously the idea that she did something wrong. Mm-hmm. And something that, you know, if it's wrong, it's shameful. And that obviously you would feel some guilt where you would, there's some guilt attaches to that. It's not that he denies any of that. I think he's exploring ways in which that gets disordered in people mm-hmm. and in societies mm-hmm. where it becomes very extreme. You know, the the extreme forms of shaming her are are just that they're totally extreme and and sort of wild but also the total lack of forgiveness mm. the lack of mercy shown towards her and and her daughter and then also sort of like there's there's no sense of like absolution or mm. you, you know like what do you do with your guilt right is they just think, well, she just has to suffer with it her whole life. And that seems not right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right. But I think- if it's just if it's just punishment, you know, um, where's the resurrection, right? Where's the redemption? Well, the punishment, the thing is, the punishment's wildly disproportionate to the crime. Now, I don't know right. how the Puritans are thinking about this, but just from a Catholic perspective... Sins of passion, sins of lust, they're sins. They're mortal sins. Like, but they're not that bad. <laughs> like, like if you're looking at I mean, think of Dante's Inferno, right? Like right, lust. Right, right. That's like right after limbo, right? Mm-hmm, I mean mm-hmm. we're right. not we're not talking like the bowels of hell here. Mm-hmm. It's treason that's Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> worst, like murder. Right? Treason. You yeah, like this stuff. It's like it's like real injustices. That's that's what's really bad. But, like, even if we, I mean, so let's just assume for the sake of argument, which I believe anyway, that adultery is a sin, what's a proportionate punishment, right? And this seems just, like, wildly disproportionate, right? Right. right. You know, well, let's just shame this woman and, and basically for force of, yeah. her to live in exile right. for the rest of right. her life right. and refuse right. to in any way reintegrate her into our society and also her daughter. <laughs> like, yes. There's something very unhealthy about that. But what I but what's so interesting to me about this novel is that it doesn't at all work out. 
the way that it's intended to work out. And this right. only comes out when we see the contrast between Hester's very public shame, Hester's very public, I don't know if we want to call it penance, actually, because penance implies absolution or, or something. And she's never really given that explicitly. Um, but she, but she's forced to publicly wear her sin, wear her shame at all times. Now, by contrast, there are two other huge sinners in this novel, <laughs> right? There's mm-hmm. Dimsdale is the actual father, right? who's the, mm-hmm. you know, the co-adulterer and the actual father of Pearl. But then there's this Roger Chillingsworth. Well, we should talk about him. But I think what's so brilliant about what he's doing is the contrast between Hester and those two men, right? Mm -hmm. Because those two men are actually totally consumed by their sins, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. literally kind of like eaten alive by it. And Hester on some very deep level is just fine. Right. In a way that they not only aren't, but can't be. And so, yeah, I want to talk about all this. I mean, let's talk about, okay. let's talk about Chillingsworth. Like, who is this? Right. And so we're not worried about spoilers. I think. No, right? no, 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 no. Right, 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 right. Okay. 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 If we're, you right, right, haven't okay. listened to this <laughs> podcast before, yeah, we're going to tell you what happens. Right. 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 So, yeah, so, so as you said, when, when the book opens, we, you know, we know this woman is guilty of adultery. We don't know how or, you know, the circumstances, uh, or who the, who the, you know, her partner, guilty partner is. And then this man shows up, Roger Chillingworth, who, you know, as it turns out, the stranger is, yeah, the stranger. He's like a, a, a doctor, a scientist, a physician of some sort of a, you know, of a, 17th century sort. <laughs> um, and it turns out that, you know, he is her husband who has been away for, I think, like two two years. And that's what, you know, she's been by herself and that's what allowed this um, adulterous affair to develop. But that extenuate, I mean, Hawthorne is so careful that this picture, it wasn't, you know, he wasn't, he, she, Hester had been abandoned by her husband, essentially. Yes, Absolutely. So that's a, you know, an extenuating circumstance, you know, from, you know, her sneaking off in the middle of the night to meet up with with her lover. I mean, she she was a woman who had been abandoned. She didn't know where he was. She didn't even know if he was alive. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, they didn't have email on Twitter to check in in those days. Yeah, they did not. But also it kind of seemed like this was something I was a little bit confused. And maybe I just missed something. But it's very clear. Like there's this really intense exchange between Chillingsworth and Prynne. And and she's like, look, I was always upfront with you from the beginning that I like didn't love you. And and he's like, oh, you know, I've wronged you because mm-hmm. I should have never married you in my advanced state of decay. So we sort of get this sense that like it was arranged or or somehow she was like forced into this marriage. Right. I don't think the details of exactly how it happened are included, but I mean, it, it wasn't necessarily that unusual, you know, at that time. I mean, a woman just kind of would take whoever came along. 
But there was something, I mean, this comes out later because we, we learn that she's committed adultery. We learn that she has been abandoned by her husband. And then we learn that their marriage really was, you know, in some sense, to use sort of Hawthorne's framework, unnatural, right? Because she was young and he was old and he knew that she was not attracted to him. And so... And he married her he, anyway. And yeah. he married her anyway. Right, right. So the, in a way, that's kind of a sin, right? And he acknowledges it. I mean, I found that really interesting. He was like, you know mm-hmm. what? I've wronged you. Mm-hmm. I should have never, like, you know, forced this marriage on you. Maybe force is too strong, but I, sh- I should have never done this to you. And mm-hmm. and I and I And I think he means that. I mean, he says to her explicitly, the scales are equal between us, like the scales of justice. You know, he's like, you've wronged me, but I've wronged you. But then he asks her to keep a secret, right? I mean, he he wants no one to know that he, that that's right. who he is. Right, right. He wants to just and remain this mysterious stranger who wandered out of the woods. And what she doesn't know, and we don't know at that at that point, that he, you know, he's going to take revenge. Mm-hmm. On not on her, but on her, the partner in her guilt. Yeah. So he. So so he's such an interesting character because you know he's like the seeker of knowledge, right? Which he also says mm-hmm. was wronging her. He's like, oh, I'm just like this old man, like into books, and I should have never. Like, <laughs> it should have been <laughs> obvious that you were never going to be into me. <laughs> But he's, you know, he's he's really passionate about knowledge and that's what motivates him. But what happens to him now that he sees kind of, you know, what's happened is that desire to know gets distorted, right? Like gets really distorted because now his obsession to know is driven not by awe or wonder or anything good, but by hatred and revenge, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. He... So his so the thing that's been motivating him his whole life has now become really corrupted, right? And, right. Uh, and he becomes obsessed, right, with with knowing, but like knowing things that I don't know that I would say he he shouldn't know, but he certainly has the wrong motive be, in knowing them. Right. 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 Yeah. So he so something like very dark is happening with him. And I don't, I could never really figure out at what point actually he like really gets on to Dimsdale as like, (laughs) well, you know, that's an interesting part of the whole novel because so much is just sort of one thing slips and slides into another. Mm -hmm. It really, I even when I was, because I committed to including no spoilers in the introductions Mm -hmm. to this. I had to go and ask a group of readers. I was like, okay, so at what point do you all discover? Because I couldn't remember. Once you know who who yeah. is the father of Pearl, yeah. like it, it all makes sense. And you go back and you, when, once you know and you reread it, it's all there. Yeah, it becomes so a li- very I, different story once you know. Right. I, I literally could not pick, figure out where we're supposed to know because it's all through it. And so mm-hmm. I think the same is through with some of the other interactions. Like, mm-hmm. And that's part of Hawthorne's brilliance because in our own, it's so hard for us, like when we're struggling through something or we're facing something or we're caught up in sin, how 
can we really just go, oh, this is the point at which this was a turning point? Like, maybe we can, but most of the time it's like, no, it's been, these things are a long time developing and, and, and growing. And like, we can't point at one spot in our life and say, oh, this is where I got caught up in right. consumed by this sin. Right. right. Yeah. So he, but at some point he gets like, he becomes pretty certain that it's Dimsdale, you know? And well, he spends, you know, he spends time doctoring him, right? Like mm-hmm. he, he's going to take care of him. But what he's really doing is seeking this knowledge that you said, trying to sort of examine him, I think, in a psychological way. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, psychology wasn't even a field um, when Hawthorne was writing, never mind when the story takes place. So in some ways, I think what Hawthorne is doing is in this regard, especially as, as far ahead of his time. So he doesn't even necessarily have words to describe what Chillingworth is doing to Dimsdale and how he's going about figuring out this sort of deep psychological, emotional truth. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so we have, so we have Chillingsworth who, you know, is going off the deep end with like revenge and jealousy. And, but then we also have Dimsdale. I actually think chapter eight <laughs> is one of the most stunning chapters of the entire novel. Mm-hmm. And that's the mm-hmm. one where um, they decide that they're going to take Pearl. So we haven't talked about Pearl. We should talk about Pearl. Right. But they decide for whatever reason, I can't, I can't remember like how this comes up, but they decide when she's three that they're going to maybe take her away from Hester Mm-hmm. and put her in a better moral environment or something. And so there's this kind of quasi-inquisition where mm-hmm. they bring the mother and the daughter in front of the governor and some other people. And they're like, um, they're almost doing like a penny catechism sort of thing. <laughs> you know, where it's like, well, let's just ask you the questions and see if you know the answers. And one, I was so outraged when I was reading this because I was like, man, I bet my three-year-old would probably just have a temper tantrum and then what? They're going to take her away from me and say I'm a bad mother. But, but also, this is where Dimsdale kind of, I think it's the, his first attempt to make good on, on what he's done. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting because he only steps in once Hester turns to him and kind of forces him to do it. It's not clear that he was going to intervene prior to her saying like, you know me, right? Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. my heart mm-hmm. because you're my pastor. And tell them, you know, that this child, she is my happiness and she is my torture. Right. And it's, it's like, yeah, it's a really, really, really striking. It's a really striking chapter, especially. I think that, I mean, I, I think that he is, it's not explicit, but I think that's where his, where he, he responds out of guilt, right? Like mm-hmm. so he's, he feels very guilty. About what he's done and what, you know, and about the possibility of Pearl being taken away. And so I think that, you know, and and Hester's words to him just speak that truth that he is guilty. And I think that's why he intervenes. Yeah. I mean, 
Yeah, and that's kind of his story, right? I mean, Dimsdale is someone who literally dies of guilt. I mean, mm-hmm. in some sense. Mm-hmm. He is he knows that he's the father. He knows that he belonged on that scaffold. And he knows that he's a hypocrite. And he is just carrying the weight of this guilt around with him. I think that weight gets heavier and heavier as time goes on. I think it's seven years before he finally comes out and says it right before he dies, <laughs> right? That, you know, this was me. And I, and I think that contrast between how Hester develops over those seven years and how Dimsdale sort of declines, right? I mean, there, I, I feel like Hawthorne is trying to say something there about the nature of guilt and the nature mm-hmm. of shame and the nature of, you know, how, how are we really supposed to bear and deal with these things? No, he absolutely is because not only does Dimsdale's guilt literally kill him by the end, Hester really ends up kind of thriving. I mean, it's much more so than you would think, um, living in her little cottage and making a living through being a seamstress and and even comes into some acceptance by the townspeople in sort of a covert way. So I, I think that's one of the central themes of the novel is is um is this difference between, you know, guilt that's acknowledged and purged in some way, even if not in a formal religious way, and guilt that's just internalized and eats away at us. Right. And you see that. I mean, yeah. I think and this is why, you know, I was again so blown away by this because It's such a more complicated picture of sin than you might have thought it would be, right? Because actually it turns out that Hester, in forcing to acknowledge her sin and being forced to do this kind of penance, she is able to live in a way that is like authentic and real and yet she lives in exile right i mean she she does i mean she she is in a kind of permanent exile right mhm mhm she's like in the community but not really and what kind of struck me when i was thinking about this is, you know, this idea that Christians have generally of being a wayfarer, of being Mm -hmm. in exile here, right? Mm -hmm. And she's living, she's actually the only one living that in the story in an authentic Mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. And like, what do we make of that? Because it can't be that Hawthorne is saying, oh, well, it's really good that she was forced (laughs) That doesn't seem like the right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. response. Nevertheless, like she is so much better Mm -hmm. off than these other two characters whose sin isn't acknowledged and in fact slowly destroys both of them over time. So I just wonder what you make of that. 
Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think that Hawthorne is showing us sort of all of the angles. As you mentioned before, he's clearly showing us the excesses of the punishment. That's clear. He's not endorsing the kind of punishment that this community puts Hester through. But he's also not denying the reality of sin and guilt and shame. To the contrary, he's showing how they work out. So if so, while he's acknowledging and depicting their undeniable reality, he's also offering us a chance to kind of look at, so, so given that unrea- undeniable reality, what do we do about it? Do, and we certainly don't put people on the scaffold and, and exile them. I mean, that, there are so many layers of that theme of exile as well. I mean, in some ways, you know, I mean, early Americans or the first Americans were exiled from their homeland. We do have the presence of the Native Americans, the Indians in the story who kind of come and join the procession. They don't play a prominent role, but the fact that they don't play a prominent role but are, are there tells us Hawthorne is, you know, he's aware of these layers of being in, being out, being in power, not being in power, abiding by the rules of a community versus not abiding. I think I point out in one of the questions how during that procession that happens later on, on the holiday, you know, the Puritans were all dressed in, in their drab black and white uh, because that's a rule. They, they allow the sailors and the Indians to break the rule. They can do whatever they want. It's just so, so interesting. So there's just aspects of the human condition and human nature that cannot be repressed. I think Hawthorne is, reali- you know, he's showing us that. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about Pearl because mm. she is an ent- so so Pearl is Hester's daughter, well Hester and Dimsdale's daughter. And she's named Pearl because she was bought at a great price, you know, this mm-hmm. sort of biblical passage. She is often described as an elf child. Mhm. She is always depicted as kind of wild and untamed Mm. and associated in various ways with the forest and the wilderness. What is, what's going on there? Mm. There's a lot Mm. of symbolism there with Pearl. Right. Right. I mean, and that, you know, there's symbolism throughout the book and, and a whole set of symbols, as you pointed out, is kind of the symbols that are linked to the supernatural in a broad sense and the more sort of sinister witchcrafty type symbols that pervade Hawthorne's work and pervaded the, you know, Puritan imagination that he's that he's writing about. Um, so it makes sense in a historical way, but it also makes sense in in the context of the story. I mean, the Puritans were just sort of obsessed with, you know, witches and uh, witchcraft and that kind of supernatural mindset, which, of course, you know, if we're Christians, we believe in the supernatural, right? And we believe in the spiritual realm. But again, what Hawthorne is, is showing is just the sort of slippery, ambiguous nature of this. I mean, Pearl is a little innocent child. She's she's not the guilty party here. And yet he paints, she, symbol, she carries all the symbolic weight because she is the result, the direct result of sin. She's innocent. She's the result of sin. And what is sin but this, you know, the, this darkness and this evil that's 
always associated with with the supernatural. So it's, it's brilliant to me because he 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 picks up the ambivalence of of what it means to be human. <laughs> we're all born <laughs> with original sin, and yet we're also you know there we aren't responsible for that in a sort of individual moral way, and yet we're, that's still how we exist and um, part of our, of our nature as human beings. So even though it's very like obvious and, and writ large in associating Pearl with all of these different symbols of the supernatural and the evil and the forest and sin and guilt, that's kind of where we all are, you know, when we're born. Yeah. I mean, I think Pearl ends up symbolizing different things to different people and obviously what she represents to Dimsdale, right, mm. is mm -hmm. is his own sin, which is compounded. So she doesn't just represent to Dimsdale the sin of adultery, but the sin of, you know, abandonment. I mean, he's not being her father, mm -hmm. even though he is her father. Right. He is not. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's neglecting so many duties. Right. Mm -hmm. And he knows this. And, de and deception. He's continuing to deceive everyone in the town. Right. Right. And and, it, and it's so interesting because eventually he desperately wants her affection. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. He wants her. To embrace him and she refuses initially and then of course right i think right before he dies she finally mm -hmm. holds his, holds his hand, hand or yeah. gives him a kiss yeah. or something but yeah, he yeah. i think for him it's almost like he's looking for absolution mm -hmm. of some kind and he's looking to her for it like can you forgive me can you still love me right even though i've abandoned you and all of this and so it's so interesting. Again, the contrast is so stark between, you know, Pearl and her relation to her mother and Pearl and her relation to her father. And the fact that Pearl is a born and born an outcast mm -hmm. in a way that none of them were for. I mean, she she was born into this in a way mm -hmm. that no one else in the story. <laughs> it's not true for anyone else in the story. And it's, it's sort of interesting to me. I don't know what you make of it, but she, she kind of just disappears in the end. Right. I don't know what right. you, what you think of that. I don't mm. know what I think of it. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think, I think that, you know, the story really is mostly about Hester and Dimsdale and the role that Pearl plays is is what we've already talked about. Is she's she, she's the she's Dimsdale's you know mirror that makes it impossible for him to deny his sin, his guilt, his continued sin and guilt and deceiving and hiding and concealing. And so, yeah, I, but I think you know she gets sort of she gets sort of a happy ending though, right? She disappears, but it's because she's. Yeah, she's, isn't she, like, married off? Yeah, it's, it's clear happily. that yeah, she's, like, yeah. wealthy and married. But, yeah, like, we're never yeah. given... I mean, like, we mm -hmm. infer it somehow from mm -hmm. things that end up... Right, right, yeah. right, right. I mean, we don't have any direct mm -hmm. knowledge 
Mm-hmm. It's, it's sort of all wrapped in an air of mystery. But she gets out. And 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 Hester doesn't. She she comes back also for reasons that aren't aren't ever clear to me. Mm. And you would have thought that okay, well they'll both they'll both escape and they and leave. But Hester comes back, mm-hmm. and it's not at all clear or even implied that she had to come back. Right. It's, it seems like a choice she made. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a deep psychological truth in that, right? I mean, there's really nowhere for her to go. There's no, or no, and, and we're just, I, it, this is her home. She has, she has made a home here. I think that's part of what bearing her guilt publicly and her shame publicly allows her to do that Dimsdale's not allowed to do. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, this is what I'm saying. It's so more complicated than I remembered it being sort of she's somehow allowed to live authentically in a way that the other main characters besides Pearl are are not right there's this amazing line well there's this incredible scene where Dimsdale gives this like final you know speech and then he mm-hmm. dies very dramatic it's sort of like <laughs> it's basically a deathbed confession and and it, it's interesting that he does that, actually, it, because, like, he knows he's about to die. I mean, why? Like, why, like, why bother in a way? Mm-hmm. I mean, if he were Catholic, mm-hmm. I would mm-hmm. understand it, but he's not. He's a Puritan. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, what? I'm kind of like, <laughs> why bother? Like, what, you know, why do you need to do this? But there's a clue. He says at some point to the untrue man, the entire universe is false. And, of course, he's describing himself as the untrue man because he's living a lie. And somehow he wants to escape that, even if it's just Mm -hmm. finally before he he dies. He He wants people to know the truth. And and I and I think from Pearl, he wants to be forgiven. And then he also, there's this, like, this scene where he says that God hath proved his mercy above all in my afflictions. I was surprised. I mean, that's a very Christian thing to say. But it was unclear to me what our perspectives as readers is supposed to be on that. Right. Because um, I'm reading this as a Catholic and I'm that makes total sense to me for someone to say (laughs) he hath proved his mercy above all in my afflictions. I understand this. But 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 where is Hawthorne with that? Right. I was kind of struggling to know what he was trying to say there. And I wondered what you Hmm. what you think about that. Well, I I I think with. All of these questions that he raises, I don't think he, ne- I think he, he raises the questions and I don't think he, that's again, what makes this work so complicated and good. He doesn't give a clear answer. I mean, he's definitely, you know, when, when, when Dimsdale says that he's saying something that you would expect even a, you know, a fallen guilty Puritan minister to say, yet, you know, he, you know, a deathbed conversion is still a conversion and that's what he's really having, right? He's repenting and confessing. And 
and the Puritans believed in those and the evangelicals and Victorians and all, you know, not just the Catholics, um, you know, the deathbed conversion is, is real and, and true and good and, and, and sad when it could have been taken place earlier. What is it? And I'm Hawthorne sorry, but just that. to, just yeah. to be, just so that I understand you, like there's a difference between deathbed conversion and deathbed confession. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm, so he's already right, a Christian. Right. right? And I mean, right, right. So it's not like he's, you know, finally accepting Christ in his heart or whatever. Oh, yeah. yeah no, no. I, I mean, that he like that conversion he is, that he's confessing his sins. And I guess maybe I mean, you can you can correct me if, if I'm just wrong about this, but I didn't think that Puritans thought you needed to do that. I mean, you, oh, to, con- to confess, to confess, yeah, to, do, to, 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 oh, to formally oh, confess no. and seek absolution and do penance. Right. Not in a formal way, but they had, I mean, their whole lives were filled with self-examination. I mean, that's actually a whole other stream that the novel comes from is like the, the spiritual autobiographies that people would write, or they would keep journals, you know, every day reflecting. So it would be more private, but it's still would be a confession. There was self-examination that would take place. I guess it just would not be as, as formal. It was considered right. really Th- important. This is a public, right? Mm-hmm. This is a public confession. Mm-hmm. And, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a very public, like, reaching out for forgiveness and a, and a kind of very public expiation of sins. And I think the thing that was unclear to me is what Hawthorne's perspective is on that, Mm, right? mm. Like, because it's clear what his perspective is with the scaffold scene. Like, we're supposed to think that's bad, right? Right, right. But it's not clear. I mean, this scene, it's not, like, it's not so obvious how we're supposed to react and and my reaction is very colored by you know my my own faith and my own faith commitments but those are not commitments that Hawthorne had right and it and it's unclear to me if this is like the scaffold scene are we supposed to be horrified it doesn't it doesn't read that way to me at all well i i think we have to take we have to and we didn't do this, but we we need to remember the earlier scaffold scene. Mm-hmm. Yep. When right, that's right, what I'm talking before. about. Sorry. Oh, yes, okay. The oh, earlier okay. one. The, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So there's the earlier oh, one which where is, it's, but that one's private. That one's well, it's the family unit. It's not in. Oh, that's right. There are three different. I'm, yeah, three yeah, different yeah, yeah. scaffold well, so, scenes. So when here. Dimsdale, when Dimsdale and Hester and Pearl are out on um, yes. you know, at night in the middle of the and night, and he mounts mm-hmm. the scaffold, and and um, that's when his his own self-imposed a mm-hmm. is revealed mm-hmm. which is yes. actually kind of a cat kind of a catholic thing isn't it? yes there's this yeah. yes so there well no we're not like constantly like carving <laughs> no but i mean the whole <laughs> but no the self self the self-flagellation or punishment right yeah. well yeah i mean so yeah so like because certainly it was it was certainly a, a medieval practice mm-hmm. And but but it's but it's super interesting because so, somewhere in the middle of this book, I'm sorry because I can't remember exactly where, but he's talking about how Dimsdale 
reverted to like popish practices, <laughs> you know, to, and, and mm-hmm. I thought that was so mm-hmm. hilarious, but, it, but, it, it, but yeah, I mean, he's, he's suffering under the weight of this guilt and he's like trying to punish himself, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as I don't know, mm-hmm. as a way of like trying to balance things out cosmically because she was so, (laughs) you know, brutally punished for so long. And then in in some sense, he got away scot-free, but on a deeper level, not at all. Right. I mean, you, he, what I find so interesting is that he is suffering on such a deeper level because of this sin than she is. Right. 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 And, and, and he is suffering a sense of shame that is so much deeper than she is. Mm-hmm. And the difference seems to be that his sin is private, right? It's not, right, right. It's not right. being acknowledged. And so, you know, he's not a true man, right? I mean, that's right. what because, he says. Because going back to the beginning and, the, well, the whole thing... You know, the, the townspeople are pressuring Hester to reveal who her her guilty partner is, and she doesn't. But he could have at any point. I mean, even at that beginning, right? So so she, you know, I think it would be a legitimate reading to say, okay, she's being, you know, self-sacrificing and self-effacing by not revealing her partner in crime. Well, also, you know what? She's saying, you be, in the, you be the man. Yeah. You know, you, spe- you know mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I'm not going to do this for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to do it. He could have at any moment, any day, you know, and before the end uh, confessed his role and he doesn't. Mm-hmm. And so he does get the worst punishment. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, again, it's so interesting because like, let's take for granted that the sun was real. You know, and maybe there were all kinds of extenuating circumstances and maybe it's totally intelligible. Lots of sins are like that and they're still sins. You know, he he is someone who possesses like real vice in a way that it's just totally unclear that she does at all. And and that's the thing about sin. It might Mm. spring from vice right? This kind of settled disposition to choose poorly among some mm-hmm. dimension of life. It's just deeply unclear that that was at all the case with Hester, right? I mean, we, we, we actually are yeah. never told. Right. I, I love that Hawthorne never gives us any details about their relationship, about their liaison. Was it one time? Was it ongoing? I mean, like that obviously is not part of the point. We certainly know that she's for all we can tell, she was chased the rest of her life. Right. So it, it, we don't have a lot of evidence that she was acting from lust in the, in the sense of a settled, you know, disposition. But he, but he, we know, is a coward, right? Is a hypocrite. Is like, I mean, he, he just comes off so much worse. And I mean, I, it really just seems that Part of what Hawthorne is is trying to show is you know the the truth of this claim to the what 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 was the quote oh to the to the untrue man the whole universe is false right I mean he's an untrue man he because right, in, right. in the in the specific sense that 
he does not live as he believes he should. Right. 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 And, and right. And I think that's a point that regardless of Hawthorne's commitment or lack of commitment to any you know, philosophical or religious system, that's what, something that remains true that, this, that he's pointing out for all of right. us. Yeah, it's so good. I just can't stress like how just, you know, I mean, we can talk about the themes of the story and obviously that's what we're going to do. But like actually reading this novel is a very powerful experience. <laughs> uh, I thought I, I was I could not put it down. And I and I think I think it's I think it's much more complicated than we make it out to be. What I guess I'll leave like final thoughts to you. I mean, what what what's the ultimate takeaway for you? Oh, that's a good question. So, I I I think I mean there's so many takeaways in this novel, but I think the ultimate one is one that we've you know we've brought up a few times. It is just that that sin is real, uh, and if it and and I don't mean just in the Christian sense. I mean our I mean you know in the in the fallenness, the depravity, the error that that all human beings can agree that. We, we are miss the mark. subject to. We miss right, the we mark. Right, we miss the mark. Right. That it is real, and because it is real, so is guilt. And it's not just an individual thing either. It is something that um, has consequences for us in our lives together. And so that's why, why how we deal with our own sin, other people's sin, and the guilt that inevitably comes is so important, not just as individuals, but in any community. And, and that's, that, that's integral to, to the Scarlet Letter is the role the community plays and how all of this plays out within a certain kind of community. Yeah, I mean, sorry, I got to ask one more question. I'm, I'm <laughs> sneak another one in here. I mean, <laughs> well, it's just so interesting to think about that in light of the place from which we started was, you know, talking about this being, you know, possibly the great American novel and sort of like what, you know, its place in American letters and, and possibly what Hawthorne's ambitions were in writing it. Isn't it so interesting then that it would be about sin? And shame mm. and guilt and Puritan religion, right? right? I mean, and not because <laughs> right, like right. it's not, I don't know, some epic heroic tale. Mm -hmm. It's not some mm. great quest. Mm. Like when I think of the Arthurian romances, I think of some great quest. You know, you gotta get the Grail or whatever. Or even, or even um, Hawthorne's friends' novel, Moby Dick, right? right. Which is a complete right. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's about sin and shame and guilt. Anyway, there's a lot there to ponder, I think. And we can leave it there. Thank you so much, Karen. This was really delightful. Oh, thank you. This was a rich conversation. Thanks for having it. You've been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy, theology, and literature podcast that is generously underwritten by the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America and produced by Catholics for Hire, a group of young Catholic digital content freelancers. Special thanks, as always, goes to Will Dethridge, Bea Kwasai, and Joe Coleman for their work in editing and producing this podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider supporting us by giving us a positive review on iTunes 
or on Spotify or wherever you listen. And also by becoming a monthly patron at patreon.com slash Patrons enjoy many benefits like tote bags and coffee mugs with exclusive sacred and profane love artwork. And also at the $10 level, free digital subscriptions to either the lamp or the point magazines. For our next episode, I will be joined by the historian Christopher Snyder to discuss J.R.R. Tolkien's fiction and Aristotelian virtue ethics. Until then, friends, be well and keep reading.